Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. Lawmakers in Ohio, like many other states, are proposing changes to voting rules. In a moment, I'll talk with someone with a voting rights advocacy group about it. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, Tracy Townsend covers a number of topics, including that vaccine lottery being offered by the state sports betting, and an effort to reduce robocalls. In the second half hour, I'll talk with a Cleveland doctor about colorectal cancer in younger people, especially women. And there's a study being put together at Ohio State University's Comprehensive Cancer Center that'll look into the efficacy of COVID-19 vaccinations in cancer patients. Details on that in about 47 minutes. First up on Columbus Perspective, on the phone with me, Kayla Griffin. She is the Ohio State Director for All Voting is Local. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me today. Thanks for talking to us. Tell us what All Voting is Local is. Yes, yeah, so we are an organization, a campaign out of the Leadership Conference for Civil and Human Rights. All Voting is Local is housed in eight different states, and we've been in Ohio since 2018, really trying to make sure that access to the ballot is equal and fair for everyone. Our goal is to make sure that we are working with the Secretary of State and the election administrators and officials on the county level to ensure that there are not barriers to ballots for people who are black, brown, uh, disabled, young, seniored, um, and just may have some trouble accessing the ballot. And so our goal is really to make sure that we are eradicating barriers. And it looks like in 2021, we have a lot of work to do. It seems that Ohio, like many of these other states, are having situations where Republicans are trying to change some of the election laws, which they say is to strengthen the laws and prevent fraud, while Democrats say it's a solution looking for a problem and also suppressing voters. Yeah, unfortunately, we we have been waiting for Ohio to introduce a bill while we watch as Florida and Georgia introduced bills at a rapid speed. Um, we waited for, for months uh, to see what Ohio would do. Um, let me kind of set the scene because in 2020, we know that Ohio had the um, most historic turnout. We also know that we had an amazing um, audit rate. Like we had 99% of votes that were casted. Uh, it was safe and secure. And we had our lawmakers here in Ohio really tout how well the election went in Ohio. And so we didn't know whether or not we would get one of these, what we call a bad deal. We didn't know if we would um, be on the brink of getting one as well. And just last week, um, House Bill 294 was introduced in Ohio. And as we read through it, we, uh, we saw that we were in imminent danger as well. Um, this wasn't the first time that, you know, we had heard chatter because there was a leaked bill uh, that came out. And we weren't talking too much about it, but we definitely um, were on high alert because of the uh, previous provisions. And the, the bill that has been released, 294, um, is not as bad as the first one. But we do consider it a, a bad bill because it will suppress voters. Um, we think of this as a Trojan horse, that a lot of the, they have some provisions in there that uh, advocates have been asking for for years, and we can, you know, dive into that and talk about that. Um, but it is poorly written, and it will disenfranchise people all across the state. 
One of the things uh, that it would set forth is uh, just one drop box at a at a county board election site, which was a big fight in Ohio uh, leading up to the November election. You know, I mean, you could have a county with 30,000 people or a county with over a million and still just one drop box serving everybody in the county. Yeah, that is extremely odd. Prior to the 2020 primaries, not every county had a drop box. But larger counties, like Cuyahoga County, Franklin County, I'm in Cuyahoga, uh, we had drop boxes. We had a drop box. We had one drop box already. And after, uh, before the primaries, uh, the House made provisions for uh, an emergency provision so that every county could have a drop box. And it worked well. It could have been much, much better because, as you said, counties who are larger counties, Cuyahoga County, Franklin County, we have close to 880,000 um, registered voters. So everyone in the county has to diverge on the county seat in order to cast the ballot if they wanted to drop it off. Um, that is uh, compared to someone like Noble County that has 4,000 voters where everybody is diverging on the county to drop it off. This provision, while we have already been using drop boxes, and let me, let me be very clear, drop boxes are not just for ballot. I have worked um, voter registration and I drop off the registrations in the drop boxes. You can also drop off your ballot application in the drop box. Um, We have had these drop boxes. They are bolted to the ground, but the lawmakers are saying that not only will there only be one location for the drop box, but they're saying, hey, you can put three drop boxes out there, but it's not feasible to have three drop boxes on one location. They're saying that you can only have one location at the Board of Election, and they're saying that the county will only have it open for 10 days as opposed to having it open um, for the extension of early voting and voting registration. That is problematic, and that's going to lead to some issues. The other thing that is in there is that it eliminates Monday early voting, so the day before election, which we know tends to be um, the day where folks, you know, if something comes up and they're like, I'm not going to be able to make it out on Tuesday, they run to the Board of Election and vote on on Monday. Um, They would eliminate a whole week from uh, requesting your absentee ballot. So we would be one of the more restrictive states, 45 states, we would be one of the most restrictive states, um, more than 45 other states. So right now we have a three-day window when you can apply for your ballot, which is very, very short. They are moving it to 10 days. Advocates, we would like to see something more around uh, seven days. We have pulled numbers, and we know that there are a lot of people who apply for their ballot within that last 10-day window, and there are a lot of people that actually return it. Uh, So we know that even with the mail slowdowns, they may be taking the ballot down to the drop box and returning it that way. Um, That would definitely restrict and and push voters out. Um, The other couple of other provisions is that there is an overhaul on curbside voting. And we've been talking to our friends at Disability Rights Ohio, and we know that the way that this bill is written, it will discriminate against people who are disabled. Um, There are people who are disabled that uh, do not physically appear to be disabled. And the way that the, uh, the law reads, it has to be 
someone who physically cannot walk into the building. And as a poll worker or somebody who's helping on election day, you may not know or may not be uh, able to uh, visibly identify someone who has a disability. And then it bans prepaid postage. No public officer will be able to pay for return postage. And that creates a modern day poll tax. And we're really concerned about that as well. Talking with Kayla Griffin, she is the state director for All Voting is Local Ohio. Uh, well, let me th- run a couple of things past you from Bill Seitz, who is the, the state representative, longtime representative, Republican from Cincinnati, who is the sponsor of the House bill. He says, if you don't have systems that will detect fraud, you won't find it. So one of his takes is that, you know, we've, we've got to make tighter restrictions or regulations in order to make sure that there's not fraud occurring. I would ask, um, where did we see fraud in our past? We got numbers from the Secretary of State. The Secretary of State is quoted by saying that um, there was incredible accuracy in the results as reflected in the post-election audits. And that should make every Ohioan proud, not only of the bipartisan election officials, but the system we have in place. Ohio ran a fair and accurate election and gave a number, a 99.98% audit rate. So I would question where are we getting this conversation of fraud? And the other thing Seitz said, uh, he's been in the state legislature for decades. And back in, I think it was in 2006, he actually voted in favor of expanding absentee balloting. Uh, But he laments that now and says, uh, we don't have election day anymore. We have election week or election month. What uh, would be wrong with, say, having election day become a national holiday and have only voting on election day, which might be a fairer snapshot of where the candidates stand at that moment of the time of the election instead of for like a month leading up to it? Well, I think having opportunity for voters to cast their ballot however they choose or decide is how we should go. We have to remember that in this country, when elections were implemented, it was implemented for white male landowners, and they had the privilege to take off and go into the city or wherever they needed to go in order to vote. So someone like me, a black woman, I did not have the privilege to go on election day to vote. And the reality is there are a lot of people throughout Ohio and this country country who are black, who are poor, um, who are young, who are disenfranchised, who are differently abled, who are disabled, who are confined, who still have the right to vote because of all the work that we have done as advocates throughout the decades and years. Um, But they can't come in on Election Day and vote. And so we have the privilege and we have made strides to understand that election time is may may not just be a day it, we in ohio we have an election season we have early voting we have an opportunity where everyone can be able to cast their ballot and have their voice heard however they they choose to do so and if we think of and look at 2020 we know that more than half of the people that cast their ballot in the 2020 election did so either by early voting or vote by mail. And it was the most historic election we had. Why would we want to go back in, a, in, in the direction that we would exclude people from operating in this election? That, those are the questions I would ask um, Representative Sites because it seems like 
we would want everybody to engage in, in the election. We, we should be proud that we had almost 6 million people vote in this past election, regardless if they showed up on election day or early or voted by mail from the comfort of their home. Kayla Griffin again. She's the state director for All Voting is Local Ohio. Uh, Kayla, if folks want more information about how to get involved in the campaigns that you're uh, spearheading here, how do they do it? Yeah, I would love for you to follow us on Twitter. We are at Voting is Local. And you can check us out on our website at allvotingislocal.org. We have an amazing um, Ohio report that we just put out and a a smaller briefer so that people can understand what is happening, kind of get some of the numbers that we talked about, and see some voter stories that uh, people who engaged in the election and worked at the polls. And so that is allvotingislocal.org, or follow us at Twitter at votingislocal. Great. Uh, Kayla Griffin, thanks so much for the information and your time. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Matthew. Oh, sorry. It's okay. I just need you to listen to me. I know that a lot of times, Mom, it might not seem like I'm listening to you, but I am. I hear you. And what you say really does matter to me. I mean, let's be honest. No kid likes rules, but I get why we have them. I hear you, and I know it's because you care. All the talks we've had over the years including what you've told me about not using alcohol and other drugs, they stick with me. And believe it or not, they really do make a difference, especially at times that matter most. Hey, want a drink? No, thanks. I'm good. So thank you, Dad, for talking and preparing me for what's ahead. Thanks, Mom, for never giving up and always being my biggest fan. Thank you for letting me know what you expect so I can try to meet your expectations. Thank you for talking. For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, here's Tracy Townsend from her Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. It is time. It's time to end the health orders. A statement that some have been waiting to hear, but others have been dreading. A look at how business owners plan to handle life without a mask mandate or social distancing rules. Plus, Governor Mike DeWine took vaccine incentives to another level with the million-dollar lottery. We're digging into how he came up with that idea and whether it's legal. Thank you so much for joining us this morning for Face the State. I'm Tracy Townsend. The CDC changed the game when it comes to mask wearing. If you are fully vaccinated, you can start doing the things that you had stopped doing because of the pandemic. And that means people vaccinated against COVID-19 can go without masks, both indoors and outdoors. There are a few footnotes. People who are immune compromised should talk with their doctors before giving up their masks. And if you are headed out on a bus, a train, plane or other kinds of public transportation, you should still wear a mask. And we are seeing similar changes on the state level. Governor DeWine ordered an end for most pandemic health orders on June 2nd. And the state is offering a big incentive to get vaccinated. Kids 12 to 17 who get their shot will be entered to win a full ride scholarship with drawings every week for five weeks starting May 26th. Scholarship to any state college or university. As for adults with one vaccine dose, they'll be entered to 
win $1 million. The drawings run the same time as the drawings for the kids. Governor DeWine's decision to lift health orders is an about face. You'll remember the original plan was to keep these orders until the state reached 50 cases per 100,000 people for two weeks. What changed and why is he doing this now? We sent 10TV's Kevin Landers to find out. Behind the scenes, several lawmakers believe Governor Mike DeWine's about face on removing the health orders was an attempt to get in front of the legislature that was going to rescind them anyway. And I'm pleased that the governor finally listened to the legislature because if the governor wasn't going to open up Ohio by the June 22nd date, which Senate Bill 22 took effect, the legislature was ready to do so. In other words, they believe Governor DeWine felt the political pressure to do it because reaching 50 cases per 100,000 people, many believe, wasn't going to happen. I believe it was an unattainable number. Senate Bill 22 to rescind the state's health orders was passed by the House and Senate on March 11th. The governor vetoed the bill on March 22nd, only to have lawmakers override his veto on March 24th. The legislation passed without an emergency clause, meaning it would go into effect after 90 days. Some lawmakers say Ohioans shouldn't have to wait to remove the health orders. This should be a decision for business owners to make and for the customers, whether they feel comfortable in going in. It should not be a decision for the government to make. They should be doing it right now. I don't think people understand the full impact of what this does to small businesses. DeWine wasn't asked if political pressure played a role in his decision to lift the health orders during his press conference, but he did make clear his idea to spend millions of federal dollars to incentivize people to get the vaccine was all his. Came from me, uh, buck stops with me. Reporting from the State House, Kevin Landers, 10TV News. And according to the governor, business owners will get to decide if customers still need to practice social distancing and mask wearing. COSI will reopen June 3rd, just one day after the orders are lifted. COSI's president and CEO says their team are going to, is going to work with local, state and federal health officials to adjust to new safety protocols as appropriate. Dr. Mashika Roberts, the Columbus Public Health Commissioner, says she hopes people will do the right thing to keep themselves safe. It's really a call to action to get everyone who's not vaccinated, vaccinated. Um, if, they're, if they're susceptible to the virus today with all the public health orders in place, they're going to be even more susceptible on June 2nd. Dr. Roberts says there are some common sense measures that businesses followed before the pandemic and should continue to follow post-pandemic. And that's making sure employees wash their hands and don't come to work sick. Now that a date has been set for lifting the pandemic health order in Ohio, you might be making some plans for the summer, perhaps a concert or a play. 10TV's Gabriela Garcia checked in with a couple of Columbus venues about their plans. As more people get vaccinated, a lot of us are excited to get back to event venues like Nationwide Arena here. But what might that look like now? I think there is a safe and effective way to increase capacity within these establishments and still keep not only the people working there, but the patrons safe. So I look to our businesses to figure out what that is. We're excited about the announcement and, and we're a little surprised as well. However, um, cautiously optimistic. Nationwide Arena General Manager Mike Gatto says the venue has kept their sporting events safe at 25% capacity so far and had already planned their concerts for full capacity in the fall. 
Just down the road, the Ohio theaters gearing up for their summer season. To think about having full theaters again and people coming to to view all the wonderful events that we've had in the past, it's really exciting for us. And we're looking so forward to having audiences back. Kappa President and CEO Chad Whittington says the Ohio Theater will keep requiring masks for now, gradually getting back to full capacity in the fall, taking some time to go from 25% to 50% capacity for a while. It's not only about the state regulations, which we've been following, but it's also about making sure that we're in tune with patrons and their comfort level. Kappa and Nationwide say they'll listen to their patrons, and doctors hope everyone listens to the science. I'm optimistic that we don't need orders to be in place in order to get our residents to do the right thing. Dr. Roberts says that while the state can lift their health orders and businesses can choose what their rules are, it's still up to each individual person to decide how to keep themselves safe. In Columbus, Gabriela Garcia, 10TV News. Restaurant and bar owners and management are working to prepare for full capacity and no social distancing rules. 10TV's Richard Solomon shares more from a restaurant owner in Dublin, and we'll take a look at how they're getting ready for next month. It's the break Ron Jordan needed. Excited to get back to work, excited to, you know, even more so, right? Excited to give people more of what they've wanted. June 2nd is marked on his calendar for his restaurant hand quarter. By now, you've heard that's the day all health orders are lifted in Ohio, and that means they're lifted for restaurants too. Uh, it's going to allow for us that made it to see some real success. You know, if you're able to weather that storm and make it through, there's a boom on the other side. The other side for Hen Quarter looks like it did before the pandemic. Jordan says no more social distancing rules and you don't have to wear a mask as a guest. You'll see more tables added too. Others have the same feeling he does. That's the thing that we've missed the most is just date night. Outside the restaurant is where I met Melissa Fincher and her boys. She's all for getting back out, but slowly and safely. Um, It's a little weird walking around without a mask on the sidewalk. While we have nice weather, I'm hoping that we'll be able to take advantage of outdoor dining this way. Jordan says he's asking people to be patient while they get back to full capacity. Right now, he and other restaurants are trying to overcome the hurdle of low staffing. But if the pandemic has taught him anything, it's things get better. You just need a little time. Well, the consumer two years ago was, I want it here, I want it now, and I want it this way. And I think people are a little more lenient now. Those are the key pieces, I think, that we're going to carry into the future and hopefully change the way dining has looked for the last 10 years. Reporting in Columbus, Richard Solomon, 10TV News. Many restaurants and other businesses have recently really been struggling to hire enough employees. Some owners blame the federal pandemic unemployment compensation program It gives people $300 more a week in unemployment benefits. That extra money will stop on June 26th. The governor made that announcement. DeWine says the program is no longer needed because people can now protect themselves against COVID-19 with the vaccine and go back to work. Now, let's get back to that vaccine incentive that's really making national headlines. Is it a million-dollar idea or a waste of federal resources? Regardless of your answer to those questions, the state of Ohio is preparing to offer up a million dollars in five lottery drawings as part of a plan to get more people to get their COVID vaccinations. Chief investigative reporter Bennett Haverly has more on the legality of this and the criticism Governor DeWine faces. Not long after the governor announced his plans, critics chimed in, wondering if this is the best use of federal coronavirus relief funds. Buck stops with me. My idea. 
Governor Mike DeWine defended his plan to create a lottery system to encourage more people to get their vaccines. Starting May 26th, adults who've received at least one dose are eligible to win a million dollars. The state plans to offer five chances to win. The governor's plan has been met with criticism from statehouse lawmakers who've called it an abuse and a waste. I did not go into this and make this decision thinking that everyone was going to say it was a wonderful idea. But I have an obligation, and that is to do everything I can to save lives, everything I can to keep Ohio moving forward. And this is one tool we had not used. I know there are people say, well, that's a terrible waste of money. Crazy DeWine, terrible, terrible waste of money. What's a waste? What's a waste is at this point, when we now have the vaccine and when someone dies of COVID because they didn't get the shot, that is what is the human waste. I think it's a great incentive, but I'd like to know where the money's coming from. Karen and Sean Kessler could use a million dollars. They're behind on rent, maxed out their credit cards, and are standing in a carport next to their roommate's car. Theirs, they tell me, was repossessed. I mean, it's like we don't deserve the millions, but I deserve to get paid when I was out. This is all that we're asking for. Sean is working now, but they're fighting with the state over unemployment benefits they claim they're owed. He was temporarily out of work when they got COVID twice, once last May and again in January. Both tell me they're now vaccinated. There are so many other things that could be done with $5 million. You know, I mean, there are so many programs that need funded and that are underfunded. And I just feel like that's a waste of money. But there may be some science behind incentives. A recent survey by the Kaiser Family Foundation found 39% of unvaccinated adults said they were more likely to get the shot if their employer paid them $200 or more. And there were similar findings in a UCLA study that found 34% were more likely to get a shot if they got $100. While she's happy about the prospect of more people getting shots, Karen says she's left with mixed emotions about the incentive in a time when she knows others like herself are in need. I worry about eviction. I worry that we could be homeless. I worry where our next meal is coming from sometimes. I worry how I'm going to pay my electric bill. You know, that's what keeps me up at night. It sounds like you've got a million reasons to, to worry. Yes, we do. Any winnings from the lottery would be taxable, according to the governor. Ten investigates looked into the guidance that the Treasury Department gave to the states regarding the coronavirus relief funds. There's no language in there that specifically prohibits the use for a lottery. There's also no language that expresses permission. We reached out to the Treasury Department but haven't heard back. Reporting in Columbus, Bennett Haberly, 10TV News. Sports betting could soon become legal in Ohio. We'll explain what it would look like under a new bill and why one lawmaker thinks the governor will sign off on it this summer. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. Hello, I'm Todd Markowitz, Vice President and General Manager of Radio Ohio, which owns 97.1 The Fan. We're an equal opportunity employer dedicated to providing broad outreach efforts regarding job vacancies within our company. We seek the help of local organizations in referring qualified applicants. Organizations that wish to receive our vacancy information 
information should send the request to the attention of Human Resources, Radio Ohio, 770 Twin Rivers Drive, Columbus, 43215. If you'd like to view our current job openings, please visit our website at 971thefan.com, and thanks for listening. What is dedication? The thing that drives me every day as a dad is Dariana. We call him uh, Day Day for short. Every day he's hungry for something, whether it's attention, affection, knowledge. And there's this huge responsibility in making sure that when he's no longer under my wing, that he's a good person. I think the advice I would give is you don't need to know all the answers. The craziest thing was believing that your dad knew everything. So as a dad, you felt like you had to know everything. You had to get everything right. It's okay to make mistakes. As long as it's coming from love, then, you know, it kind of starts to work itself out. I want him to be able to sit back one day and go, we worked together, we did a good job. That's dedication. Find out more at fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. An Ohio lawmaker is predicting Governor Mike DeWine will make sports betting legal in the state by June. Lawmakers have been working for more than two years to craft legislation that would allow for sports betting on college and professional sports. Under the proposal, 11 casinos and racinos would be eligible to apply for a sports betting license. Each license would cost a million dollars. Ohio's bill would also allow for mobile sports gambling. The Casino Control Commission would uh, determine what sporting events are bet on, what college athletics are bet on, etc. I personally favor being able to bet on college athletics. I think that these universities make billions and billions of dollars off of the back of these students, and you know, so it's really hard to call it an amateur sport. The bill would allow retail establishments that already have Kino to apply. Governor Mike DeWine signed a new bill into law. The law will provide Ohioans millions of dollars for rent and utility assistance. The legislation will give $465 million to the Developmental Services Agency. Governor DeWine went into more detail during the bill signing. Allowable uses include rental assistance, electric, gas, trash, water, sewer, home energy, and internet services in certain circumstances. Uh, This program is intended to financially assist Ohioans who've been impacted by COVID-19 pandemic and are not in a position uh, to pay their rent. Low-income households and or those that have experienced a substantial loss of income due to the pandemic can contact now their local community action agencies. Governor DeWine says he's very happy the Senate was able to pass this bill quickly. A new social media app in the works isn't really sitting very well with attorneys general across the country, including Ohio's. It's Instagram for kids under the age of 13. 10TV's Richard Solomon looks at the concerns many people have over this app. Most of us have had the talk with our parents about social media. The same convo Lindsay Livingston plans to have with her kids. You may know her from her blog, The Lean Green Bean. But Livingston's Instagram is where she connects with people. She has to share kind of like our daily life and little 
you know, behind the scenes and things that, I, that don't necessarily make it onto the blog. But when she heard news about Facebook launching a platform for children under 13, this was her response. Do you think an Instagram platform for kids is a good idea or not? No. And here's why. Kids today have so many reasons already to be on their phone. It's so easy to fall into that comparison trap. And I feel like apps like Instagram would just feed into that. She's not alone. More than 40 attorneys general have reached out to Facebook saying don't launch their app for kids. Ohio's Dave Yost included. In the letter directed towards CEO Mark Zuckerberg, the bipartisan group brought up concerns they have around online predators, body imaging, and protecting children. But Dr. Parker Houston with Nationwide Children's Hospital says kids will be exposed to the good and bad of social media. How you protect them is by educating them. The benefit of some of the kid apps is that parents have direct access to the kid's account versus the original versions of the app where they can change their password or they can start a new account without parents' knowledge. For now, Livingston wants her kids to focus on something other than social media. To be a good student, it's to play sports, it's to be a kid. It's not something they need to worry about right now. Reporting in Columbus, Richard Solomon, 10TV News. And Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg says it's in development and could be beneficial for kids to stay connected with friends and hopes to work with lawmakers and regulators. It's unclear right now when that app might be rolled out to the public, so we'll certainly be watching that. This week, 10 Investigates dug into an issue that annoys nearly every one of us. We are talking about robocalls. 10TV's Bennett Haberly found out the billions of unwanted telemarketing calls far outpaced the number of complaints and the relatively smaller number of law enforcement investigations meant to stop the calls. There's that sound again. Please contact us as soon as possible. If you suffer from chronic pain, press 1. I'm sorry I missed you. Press 1 now to speak to a warranty specialist. Right now. And add about our the The messages you're hearing all came to Peter Mesitis, the North Royalton, Ohio man, has been at war for years. After his mother fell victim to mail scams 20 years ago, Peter has made it his mission to collect, log, and complain about each robocall he receives. In truth... I was outraged. I was mad. His 50 complaints are a drop in the bucket compared to the 48,000 the Ohio Attorney General's office has received just within the past year. Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost says his office has at least 40 active investigations. Does it feel like a game of whack-a-mole that you guys are investigating, you know, or have had tens of thousands of complaints, but there are literally hundreds of millions of calls coming in? That's right, but we are... Uh, trying a different game than whack-a-mole. We're going after the holes that the moles hide in. Last fall, Yost and the Federal Trade Commission announced a settlement with a group of Canadian men, the agencies accused of offering bogus credit card reduction services. The settlement barred the men from doing telemarketing in the U.S. and forced them to turn over $2 million in fines. But both Yost and the FTC acknowledge enforcement actions can be challenging because many robocall operations originate overseas. When someone is located outside the United States, we don't have as many tools in our arsenal because you know we aren't we don't have international law enforcement authority. And setting up a robocall operation is even easier these days, according to computer programmer Michael Self, who had experience setting up robocalls for political operations in the 80s. 
Self says all it takes is a bit of internet savvy and a credit card to set up a robocalling system. So what if you made three, four, five, six million calls and you got four, five, six on the line that you know you, you take for a couple hundred or a thousand dollars or whatever you did? You've scored pretty big. And the phone bill for that? Hundreds of dollars. A nationwide investigation by Tegna stations found robocalls are a national nuisance. According to this analysis by UMail, the calls peaked this year at nearly five billion in March. During that same month, Ohioans received 186 million robocalls. As part of our investigation, 16 Tegna stations across the country also bought new cell phones earlier this year. The unwanted calls started coming in days and weeks after activation. Hello, Moto. In some cases, the calls came without ever using the phones to call or text anyone. Roughly one in four calls are illegal or unwanted spam robocalls. That sounds crazy. It's unbelievable. Again, 25% of billions of calls. Aaron Foss is the CEO with Nomo Robo, a company that created an app to help reduce the calls. Foss's company purchased 350,000 tainted numbers and directs them to what it calls their honeypot, where robocall patterns are studied. He agreed to redirect robocalls to the phone I bought earlier this year. Hello there. Within minutes. Hello. The calls came in. That's another one. Oh, that one hung up before I could answer. Most of the people on the other end declined to talk to me. But one did. You guys have called multiple numbers. I mean, you know that's kind of a nuisance to people's lives, right? I, I totally agree. The caller told me he works for a debt collection service, which we're not naming. Um, do you feel like you guys are contributing to the problem, though? I wouldn't say we are because mostly a lot of our clients have federal loans. We the challenge, Foss says, is not knowing which robocalls might be from legitimate agencies and which are not. Robocalls are annoying, but they're also really dangerous. But all hope is not lost. The federal government is proposing new rules that would cut down on spoofing. That's where the callers change the number to make it appear as though it's coming from your area. The Ohio Attorney General's office, in the meantime, says its investigations may take a couple of years to bear fruit. So what can you do to help stop the calls? Well, step number one, sign up for the Do Not Call Registry with the Federal Trade Commission. Tip number two, if you do get a robocall, don't engage. Simply hang up. Better yet, don't answer. Picking up and engaging with robocallers can actually lead to more robocalls. Tip number three, download a robocall blocking app. Number four, write down who called the number, the date and time, and what company they claim to work for. And step five, simply turn them in. We've made that step even easier, creating a guide online to walk you through how to turn in suspicious robocallers. At 10TV.com, our investigation continues there online with additional stories exposing just how pervasive this problem has become. Bennett Haberly, 10 Investigates. Remember, if you have something you'd like our 10 Investigates team to look into, email them at 10investigates at 10TV.com. We certainly thank you all for joining us here today. Remember, if it affects you, your family, and Ohio, we're here to make sure those accountable face the state. That's again Tracy Townsend, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, from their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. The strength of our country hasn't just been won on the battlefield. 
It's one every day in our communities when we come together in our toughest times. For over 100 years, the American Legion has been strengthening communities across our nation by providing life-saving help and support to our veterans and neighbors during times like we're facing today. We are the American Legion, veterans strengthening America. To learn how you can help, visit legion.org. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and joining me on the phone is Dr. Sapna Thomas, a gastroenterologist with the University Hospitals of Cleveland. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Thanks for talking to us. We're going to talk about colorectal cancer and also the trend of younger women uh, being diagnosed with colon cancer. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, a recent study came out uh, looking at women, especially under the age of 50, diagnosed with colorectal cancer across the country. And what they found is that women in certain zip codes in, in counties were dying at a higher rate than other women. And so they found some interesting facts that sometimes physical inactivity or lower fertility, as well as race and ethnicity, may play a role in that. So that is definitely concerning that we need to do better as far as screening not only uh, women, but men and maybe at younger ages. And some of those areas are in Ohio, right? That is correct. Uh, Hamilton County, um, which includes Cincinnati, as well as uh, multiple northeastern Ohio counties are included in those hotspots. What is perhaps the biggest risk factor that might be uh, part of this? Well, there's a lot of factors that go into the risk of colon cancer. Sometimes family history um, and genetics play a role. Um, However, you know, diet may play some role in colorectal cancer, although those are not clearly defined. But as we see our Western diet change, as we see increasing rates of obesity, um, even smoking can um, all play a role in the risk of, of having colon cancer. I knew a woman who unfortunately passed away from colorectal cancer who was in her late 30s, and I remember reading that that this sort of thing is becoming more common. It was almost unheard of decades ago. That is correct. We are seeing uh, recent studies uh, have noted an increasing incident in colon cancer in younger adults, and that's why current recommendations are uh, recommending to decrease the age of initial screening to 45. Um, We do see that younger patients diagnosed with colon cancer tend to have more aggressive disease than those that are diagnosed at older ages. But um, ideally, you know, the earlier we can screen and screen the larger population of people, then the sooner we can find the precancerous polyps, remove them, and hopefully even prevent colon cancer in those patients. And you're concerned also because of the coronavirus that most people have for the last year uh, not been getting those kind of checkups. That is correct. I mean, with coronavirus and a lot of things being shut down, um, people not being at work, and also the fear of coming into a center or two that they might um, get the virus, um, it's important to remember that, you know, screening and health care, it's still important to maintain those screening tests, and um, colon cancer should not be put to the back burner because everybody needs to be screened. Talking with Dr. Sapna Thomas, gastroenterologist with University Hospitals of Cleveland. What is the biggest symptom, even if it's subtle, what is it that people are are not paying attention to? I think the most common symptom that people tend to ignore is probably blood in the stool, which a common cause of that is hemorrhoids. However, um, without knowing for sure, it's important to um, talk to your provider and potentially get um, a colonoscopy to evaluate that bleeding to make sure that it isn't a polyp or a tumor that might be bleeding. 
Patients can also have um, change in bowel habits, abdominal pain or rectal pain that's new um, or unexpected weight loss. And, you know, even those symptoms should all be uh, discussed with their provider and considered having a colonoscopy, but even people who don't have any symptoms can still have a large polyp or a tumor um, that um, could be could become worrisome. I know that the, the individual case will vary, but what is more alarming, uh, fresh, bright red blood in the stools or black tarry stools? Well, um, fresh, bright red blood is considered um, coming from lower in the GI tract, and so hemorrhoids or even tumors that might be lower in the rectum or distal um, part of the colon uh, can have more brighter blood. However, blood that might be darker or might not even be visible may be coming from up higher in the colon on the right side of the colon. Okay, and, and what about testing? Has less invasive testing made inroads of, in recent years? There are some available um, less invasive testings. Um, however, you know, the recent recommendations from the American College of Gastroenterology just it talks about uh, first one-step testing, which would be the colonoscopy, because we can also find polyps, remove them, and prevent colon cancer versus the two-step, which does have some initial testing that might be less invasive, such as stool-based tests or um, CT colonography, which is a CAT scan type of test, a colon capsule, um, or even just a flexible sigmoidoscopy. But the issue with those tests is that if they're positive, you still need a colonoscopy. And patients should check with their insurance company about the potential cost of this two-step program. Okay, and I did want to ask you one other thing about symptoms. Is pain generally a, a symptom of this? And, and if so, is it does that happen early enough to, to catch it in time? Well, symptoms of colon cancer generally start to arise as the tumor grows or either causes an obstruction or um, invades the wall of the colon. So the earlier uh, that we can find it when it's still a polyp, which generally has no symptoms, is important to, to consider. Abdominal pain can be from a lot of different causes. Um, obviously, colon cancer is one of the more um, concerning reasons, and so talking to your provider as far as your symptoms and how new they are will help um, guide uh, further evaluation. And what about treatment and prognosis? So we are seeing uh, mortality rates decreasing the colon cancer, and part of that is related to early detection, um, better screening, um, as well as better surgical and treatment options for colon cancer. So the mortality rate is definitely decreasing since the 1980s. Um, but the issues we discussed earlier is, is finding younger people with more advanced cancers um, earlier that we need to uh, try to address better. Talking with Dr. Sapna Thomas, gastroenterologist with University Hospitals of Cleveland. So what would be the biggest advice you could give to, to women or anybody who may be at risk? Well, we do feel the best screening is the one that gets completed. So despite us only screening about 60% of adults across the country, I would, my best advice is to talk to your provider, get screened um, any which way you're willing to. Obviously, we believe in colonoscopy for both prevention and screening, um, but any symptoms or even no symptoms, if you're over the age of 45, um, consider getting screened. And uh, is there a website you're uh, advising folks to check out? Yes. I would definitely recommend going to gi.org slash colon cancer for more information from the American College of Gastroenterology. Okay, Dr. Thomas in Cleveland, thanks so much for the information. Thank you for your time. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. We're going to keep it in the medical arena here. Joining me on the phone is Sarah Reisinger, who is with the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center. We're going to be talking about uh, a study that's going to be taking place at OSU. Thanks for joining us. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Thanks for talking to us. Uh, tell us uh, your involvement in this study. I know that you're working with Dr. Peter Shields there, an oncologist. Yes. Um, 
Dr. Peter Shields and Dr. Zihai Li are um, the principal investigators or the, the primary researchers of the SIREN study. I oversee Dr. Shields' um, clinical research, and we are conducting the COVID vaccine uh, study of infections and immune response, or the SIREN study. Okay. So from what I understand, then, you want folks in uh, Columbus to be involved in this study in which you're going to see how the COVID vaccine impacts those who are being treated for certain types of cancer? Yes. So this study really primarily looks at the vaccination um, efficacy among cancer patients. And we really need these, um, the study and the information because cancer patients are often excluded from larger clinical trials. And um, they are often immunocompromised and their response to um, vaccinations, uh, specifically the new types of vaccinations, the mRNA vaccinations, um, may be different than uh, people without cancer. And uh, right now, uh, are people with, say, lung cancer or other forms of cancer, are they getting the vaccine or are they being recommended not to get it? Or what's, what's their status right now? It is uh, very individual depending on the patient's condition and their treatment. But typically, providers do recommend uh, cancer patients receive the vaccination um, because they are vulnerable to uh, many infections, specifically a respiratory infection such as COVID. And I know Dr. Shields specializes in lung cancer, so obviously this is just a huge uh, concern because it's also the number one cancer killer, right? Yes, he's very concerned and wants to do uh, the best he can for all of our patients um, with lung cancer and all cancers. Our goal is really to understand if cancer patients can still test positive for COVID after um, being vaccinated, and if they do, um, will they have symptoms? And we also want to understand um, their immune response, and is it different than patients without cancer? And how long does that immune response uh, last? And are there ways that we can um, predict their immune response? All of this information is vital because, as I mentioned, they are not typically included in traditional clinical trials. And um, this information will help us understand how to inform um, future vaccinations as well as um, community practice and precautions for COVID and other respiratory conditions such as masking, social distancing, um, making sure they shelter uh, or um, restrict their visits with um, people who are not vaccinated. And this comes at an interesting time because I know that there have been new developments in early screenings for lung cancer, which means more people may be caught with it earlier when it's more treatable. And yet out of the blue, seemingly in the last year, we've had this virus comes along that poses a real risk to them outside of cancer. Yes, I think the increase in screening, such as the low-dose CT, is very important in identifying and um, diagnosing cancer at an earlier stage. That gives our patients um, a greater survival and um, allows us to treat them um, much sooner uh, in their progression of the disease. However, with COVID, it can complicate the treatment plan as well as overall health and well-being and it's very important that we understand the implications of vaccination and how the vaccination 
in response for a cancer patient um, may be different um, because of their condition, specifically in that case, as you mentioned, um, lung cancer, but it could be for all cancers. Talking with Sarah Reisinger, she is uh, program director with uh, Dr. Peter Shields. Uh, he and another doctor are conducting a study at the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center. So how is this study going to work, Sarah? What's uh, How are you recruiting or what are these folks going to be doing? Yeah, thanks. Um, basically, this study is going to enroll 450 patients with cancer and 100 who do not have cancer. Um, participants can be Ohio State patients or they can be from the community. We gain the most information for participants who have not been vaccinated, um, but we are expanding the study to include those who have been vaccinated as well. So that could be um, either after the first um, of either of the mRNA doses, uh, Pfizer or Moderna, or if they receive both of their doses. We will be um, asking participants to complete surveys and um, come to an OSU clinic to provide uh, blood samples to over the course of a year. And um, they'll be compensated for their time. For the participants who have um, cancer, we will also be asking them to collect their saliva at home once a week for about four months. And um, those samples will be tested for COVID. Okay. And it's interesting because this is actually going on then during a time when even among healthy people, uh, among anybody for that matter at this point, nobody really knows just yet how long the vaccine protects people, right? That's exactly right. And this whole um, public health crisis has really highlighted how many gaps we have in knowledge and understanding a new disease. We have a lot of knowledge gaps, especially in novel and diseases such as COVID. And specifically in this population of cancer patients who are receiving a vaccine that is unique. The time of protection, you might find out, could even be different among cancer patients than healthy patients. I mean, who knows, right? Nobody knows. Absolutely. Uh, We don't know. We don't know with healthy patients or with cancer patients. And that's actually a specific uh, question that we're looking at. Um, What is the trajectory of the immune response and, and the quality of the immune response? And what influences those? We're also going to be looking at what specifically impacts the immune response, um, how we can um, predict how a patient um, with or without cancer um, will respond and how long that immunity lasts. And since you're looking at different types of cancer, maybe somebody with lung cancer, the outcome could be different than somebody with with something that's not related to the lungs at all. And so we are recruiting um, not just patients with lung cancer, but um, many different types of cancers. And um, we're looking to understand how it affects um, all, all different um, diseases and treatments. Talking with Sarah Reisinger from Ohio State University's Comprehensive Cancer Center. So you gave an indication that cancer patients will be uh, taking their own saliva samples and such. How often will folks have to actually come into the center? It depends when they enroll if they are already vaccinated or not. But generally, they will have to come to Ohio State um, around three to four times over the course of a year. And that's just for a simple blood draw. 
Okay. If they're patients of OSU, they will be able to um, go ahead and have the blood drawn at an existing visit if they already have one scheduled during um, our preferred window. Okay. And is this specifically for those who have received a vaccine, the Moderna and Pfizer only as opposed to the Johnson & Johnson? Yes. Um, our study is uh, focusing on the um, new mRNA vaccines, which are the Pfizer and Moderna. And you mentioned this will go on for about a year, and then uh, I, I would imagine it'll take some time to evaluate all of it to figure out what the answers are. Yeah, absolutely. Over the course of the year, we will be um, looking at the data to identify any preliminary findings, and then at the end of the study, we will um, analyze all of the data comprehensively to um, present a um, final analysis. Are there other hospitals uh, that are doing the same thing around, around the country? I'm not aware of any other hospitals. I think this study is incredibly unique and, um, and will be very informative, especially um, filling in a lot of knowledge gaps that um, currently exist um, both um, within the U.S. and globally. And uh, you mentioned that people who have and have not received a vaccine uh, are eligible for this. If they have already received a vaccine, are they getting another one when they enroll, or is it just going to be based on what they've already gotten? That's a great question. No. Um, if patients are already vaccinated, um, they will not receive an additional um, vaccine specifically through this study. They will continue along their um, typical plan for their vaccination, whether they've already had the first dose or second dose. Um, we will just ask for um, them to complete surveys and provide those blood samples. Uh, for patients who haven't been vaccinated uh, and enroll in the study before they uh, receive their vaccine, we, um, we get their blood at the um, time of vaccination as well as um, three other time points over the course of a year. And that allows us to see the entire spectrum, um, both pre-vaccination um, and then post-vaccination. Okay. With that many people involved in the study, it seems inevitable, perhaps, that some will come down with the coronavirus. I'm assuming, you know, that it's not going to be completely wiped out nationwide over the next few months. So in the event you've got active participants in the study with coronavirus, what happens then? Um, you're absolutely right. Uh, some of the data, and, and we continue to learn more and more every day about the efficacy of the of the vaccines. But um, so some early data have um, suggested that there's about a two percent rate of COVID after vaccination. We are going to be looking at. Um, the cancer patients who may potentially have a higher rate of um, diagnosis because they are immunocompromised. If a cancer patient um, tests positive during our study, we will inform them and so they could potentially be asymptomatic and um, have a, a positive diagnosis through their saliva sample and we would inform them as well as the state. Uh, which we're, we are required to do. Sarah, how are uh, folks uh, able to get connected with the university to, to get involved in this study? What do they do? Anyone who's interested in participating can go to uh, cancer.osu.edu slash siren. That's S-I-I-R-E-N. Cancer.osu.edu slash siren. 
Siren, that's S-I-I-R-E-N, or they can call 1-844-744-2447. Okay, Sarah Reisinger again. She is with the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center involved in the SIRENS study. It's a study of infections and immune response that is involving cancer patients and the coronavirus vaccine. Uh, Thanks so much for the information today and good luck with the study. I hope it goes well. Thank you very much. This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. Heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM, that's 1460 ESPN Columbus, and Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM. Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.